swore there was no get back in him. He was standing where he stood in 32. Nate took off his hat and sat down with us by the fireplace. We asked him right off why he joined the Union. He didn't respond directly. Rather, he interpreted the question and began, I was hauling a load of hay out of Apophalia one day, and continued uninterrupted for eight hours. He recounted dealings with landlords, bankers, fertilizer agents, mule traders, gin operators, sheriffs, and judges, stories of the social relations of the cotton system. By evening, the fire had risen and died and risen again, and our question was answered. T.J. turned on the electric light, a single high-watt bulb suspended in the center of the room. We talked some more with the Shaws about how we planned to use the information Nate had just given us. They were glad to help us, they said, and if our report reached other people who found their lives instructive, they would be gratified. We thanked them for being so kind and for taking us into their confidence, and, promising to return, we left. Driving north, we felt something slipping out of our grasp. We could remember the details of Nate's stories, but no reconstruction could capture the power of his performance. His stories built upon one another so that the sequence expressed the sense of a man becoming. Although Nate Shaw and the sharecroppers' union had intersected only for a moment, everything that came before had prepared him for it. Nate had apparently put his whole life into stories, and what he told us was just one chapter. We had come to study a union, and we had stumbled on a storyteller. Nate must have told his stories, at least the ones we heard, many times before. T.J. and Winnie, who listened as closely as we did, would stir whenever he digressed and remind him where his story was going. Nate would roll his tongue over the lone yellow spear-like tooth at the corner of his mouth and say, I'm coming to that. I just have to tell this first. Over the next two years, I visited the Shaws twice. Each time I met other members of the family who, if more wary of my intentions, were no less hospitable. In particular, I struck up a friendship with Vernon Shaw, Nate's second son. Vernon is the last of nine brothers and sisters still farming. He has a sixty-acre place of his own on which he raises beef cattle and corn to feed his hogs. In addition, he farms a big crop of cotton on rented land. It was he who stepped into his father's shoes when Nate went to prison and stuck by his mother and the younger children for twelve years until Nate returned. His brothers and sisters looked to him as the immediate link with the old family and the soil. Four of Nate's children live in Alabama, three within shouting distance. Rachel, the second child and oldest girl, called Sister, Garvin, the eighth child and youngest boy, and Vernon. Calvin Thomas, the first child and oldest son, lives about twenty miles away. Five children live out of state. Francis, the third son, in Philadelphia. Maddie Jane, the second daughter, in Brooklyn, New York. Eugene, the fourth son, in Middletown, Ohio. Leah Ann, the third daughter, and Rosa Louise, the fourth daughter and youngest child, both in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Each time I visited Nate Shaw... He told me a little more about them, how they support themselves, how they hold their heads up in the world. Shaw prides himself on the social standing of his children. They are upright and industrious, following the education they received in his home. 
but his chief fascination is with their deeper natures, for which he doesn't hold himself accountable. There's my Vernon, he would say, or there's my Francis, and leap into some childhood incident that showed their natures to him and distinguished them from their brothers and sisters. Shaw revealed less about his first wife, Hannah. He praised her for her strengths and virtues and chided himself for not having acknowledged her sufficiently during her life. His remarks were brief, and I had no cause to press him at the time. Later I learned from him and his children what a great-hearted woman she was. Nothing so aroused Shaw as his recollections of his father. Shaw is still in conflict with a man who was a boy during President Lincoln's administration. While it is not unusual for a child to have unresolved feelings about a parent, it is disarming to see a struggle so open and honest. Shaw demonstrates that...